All right, I'm going to turn over to Proverbs 16 tonight and invite you to do the same. Proverbs chapter number 16. And we are going to be looking tonight at verses 11 through 15. And uh, some of these verses we will deal with a little more in depth than others. Some of the verses in this text tonight, we are going to uh, just kind of scan through them, uh, really with an entirety of continuing this uh, particular series we've entitled for Proverbs 16, Of Man Proposes, But God Disposes. This is the fourth part of this particular uh, series on Proverbs 16. We see there in verse number 11, uh, we, we picked up, uh, we only got through verse 10 last week. We intended on getting through verses 10 and 11, so we'll pick up verse 11 and we'll read down through verse number 15. The Bible says, A just weight and balance are the Lord's. All the weights of the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him that speaketh right. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, but a wise man will pacify it. In the light of the king's countenance is life, and his favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. Now these verses bring to mind uh, somewhat of an idea or an ideal situation. Uh, the ideal situation is to be under the rule of an ideal king. Now, it has been said occasionally from time to time, and I think I mentioned this last week, occasionally uh, earthly rulers have been set up, they've been established, who truly did hate sin, they hated iniquity, uh, they hated wickedness and evil, and they truly loved righteousness. But we still understand that even in the midst of the most uh, righteous man that we or woman, for that matter, uh, there would still be a great desire for a true king, a king that would truly judge nations and people with true justice, true mercy, uh, in pure righteousness in all things at all times, and in whose mouth would declare things to be as they really are. Now tonight, our purpose really is to examine two points we introduced last week. And that was, first of all, we want to see how that Christ Himself, uh, as the Son of God, has the same providence that God the Father has. And we might say, why is that important? Uh, it's especially important when we're talking about the governance of people, the governance of nations. Uh, and then secondly, we'll consider that the providence of God, which includes the Father and the Son, governs all things generally and specifically. So we are still answering that question, does God truly rule everything? That is, in fact, the question of providence. Uh, providence is a uh, non, it's really not a controversial subject, even amongst denominations. Most people acknowledge that there is the providence of God. However, I came across this uh, illustration that I thought was very, very good uh, regarding what providence is. And this, was, this is written by Spurgeon, and he entitled this, Providence is Like a Wheel. And I thought this was very good. He says, Providence is like a wheel. Sometimes one part of the wheel is at the top, and then it is at the bottom. 
Sometimes a part is exalted, and soon it sinks down to the dust. Then it is lifted into the air, and then again, by a single revolution, it is brought down again to the earth. So is it with our life. Sometimes we are in humble poverty and hardly know what we will do for bread. Soon the wheel revolves and we are brought into the comfort of wealth. Again, we are brought low through affliction and famine. A little while and another page is turned and we are exalted to the heavens and can sing and rejoice in the Lord our God. We may now stand at the uppermost part of it, but it is a wheel and we may yet be brought low. And the poor who are depressed and downcast, who are weeping because they do not know where they will lay their heads, that wheel may revolve and they may be lifted up. Our own experience is never a stale thing. It is always changing, always turning round. Providence is like a wheel. So much great truth in that. Uh, really, when you sit back and I read that, I thought, why, why didn't I think of that illustration? It really is simple, but it's such a powerful truth that providence truly does govern all things. So that even the moments of our famine, we sang that hymn, God leads us along. Some through the water, some through the floods, all through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through the fire, all through the blood. We're going to go through those things. And it is God that leads us along even in those times that we seem to feel as if maybe we have been left. Now again, as we think about this and we think about the providence of God, we need to consider the providence of God also with regard to his government and how God rules. How God, even as we use that illustration, providence like a wheel. Sometimes uh, we are in a state for as far as a nation where we're brought low. Sometimes that wheel revolves again and we're, we're back into a place of wealth. We're back into a place of rejoicing and praise. And I thought, how appropriate that is. Uh, all of us probably can think of a time when uh, that wheel of God's providence was certainly at the high point. Uh, as a, a government, as a nation. Uh, I, I like the book of Proverbs from the standpoint that it, it truly does deal uh, with every aspect of human life. And when we think about the government of God, obviously we're talking about something that is a little bit harder to see. Uh, we don't see God's government, per se. Uh, we don't see a throne where God, we can see with our eyes where God is seated upon that throne, but we, we do know that God is ruling and God is in charge. And those that God has put into those places of authority, uh, those are in fact uh, individuals who are part of God's government. So verses 11 and 12 really give us an illustration of an explanation of God's government. Um, and it's interesting because it, it's not it doesn't jump out of the page at you. And you see it and you're like, what's this got to do with government? But when we think about explaining God's government, first of all, we need to understand there is this unity in Christ the Son and God the Father. So in other words, we, it would be inappropriate for us to say that God the Father governs all things without including Christ also governs all things. In other words, Christ governs all things as well as the Father. In other words, whatever the Father, however the Father governs, Christ the Son governs. They are not two separate governors, if you will. They govern together. 
And in verse number 11, we see really two word pictures or word illustrations, much like that providence is like a wheel. It says a just weight and balance are the Lord's. Now, a just weight and a balance, notice the ownership is of the Lord, which means when you see things in the Bible that talk about something being of the Lord's, it doesn't just mean ownership. It also means he is the author of, he is the divisor of. In other words, it's what he has put into the heart in order that man will make use of it. In other words, what God does is gives to man those things that will benefit mankind. In other words, God does not just randomly give things, including government, just to simply have something to do with it. No, in fact, what he's doing is he is giving those things for the benefit of mankind. Now, what is the purpose of God's government? The purpose of God's government is to keep and maintain truth and justice in all things. In other words, what has God appointed? God has appointed and commanded that there will be truth and justice in all affairs of mankind. God has a just weight and balance. Now, the terms just weight and balance is an interesting phrase. These are, a, uh, these are uh, they're, they're measures, they're weights and measures. But they're descriptions that how God weighs out, how God puts and places are always in perfect unity. In other words, if a government goes bad, it's not because Christ is governing wrongly. It's because man is abusing or misusing what God has, governed, or God has given to govern. Now, that phrase, just weight and balance, goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus. So if you want to turn to Leviticus 19, we get a little bit of an insight as to uh, what this means. Now, again, it's, it's kind of these... Uh, these peculiar statements, uh, which is one of the things that makes, again, Proverbs uh, such an interesting and sometimes yet difficult book. But Leviticus 19, verses 35 through 37. This is part of the uh, chapter that deals with laws concerning personal conduct and also righteous dealings with individuals. In other words, treating people and dealing with them honestly and correctly. So it's in a chapter that deals with laws, government. And you see in verse number 35, it says, ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in metered, in weight, or in measure. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am the Lord. There in Leviticus, it's clearly demonstrated. Just balances, just weights. So when we, when we weigh... Okay, when we weigh a man's character, for example, do we always measure it or weigh it accurately? Well, the answer to that question would be no. Uh, sometimes we do not weigh or measure fairly. In other words, we might put more emphasis on one thing and leave something out of the other. But the reality here of what, we're, what we're, he's talking about here is we often look to our own goodness. 
We often look to our own measure to declare and then measure somebody else with our standard of measurement. Does that make sense? So what, what, what we're doing is instead of weighing it with just weights and just scales, which God does, we measure everything based upon our own view of it or by measuring it against someone else. It was the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 who called the afflictions of God, for example, he called them light. Yet we would consider our burdens, our afflictions to be heavy. In other words, when you're weighing something out, you have to see that it's being weighed justly and fairly. So in other words, these measures were given to estimate the responsibility or the obligation. In other words, what what God is trying to tell us here in Proverbs 16 is that God always measures and weighs and considers in a just manner. It's always in balance. In other words, God is not going to misjudge any situation. It says all the weights of the bag are His work. Now the weights there refer to stones. Now in those days, measurements or uh, even methods of payment was often done with stones. Some of the stones in those bags would be larger stones, some would be smaller stones. They were used in a bag. They were put in a bag and that was used to weigh. Notice what he says. Those weights of the bag are his works. In other words, the very weight in those bags are by God's appointment and the order. In other words, everything that's being done has been placed there according to God's appointment. Now, in one way we can apply this and really think about that. We can apply the truths and we understand when we read the Word of God and we apply it to the Scriptures. We could say about the Scriptures that these are in fact the Scriptures and the Word of God. They are, they are trustworthy. They have been given to us justly. They have give, been given to us in a way that they're never going to lead us astray. They're never going to send us down a wrong path. They're never going to declare something to be contrary to His Word. They are, it is the balance of truth which lays within the Scripture. I weigh out what I hear against the Bible. So when I hear something in government, for example, I weigh that out against the balance of the truth that's found in the Scripture. It becomes that which I compare it to. I weigh and balance everything with the Bible. So, how do I know what's right and what's wrong? I know what's right when it's found to not be contrary to the Scriptures. Now, this is a big struggle that people are having in our day and age with when it seems to be uh, now this uh, desire to completely revolt against established government. Uh, The idea here is, is that God says, if that is not contrary to the Scriptures, then it ought to be received and accepted. However, if something is found to be contrary in doctrine or contrary to something that the Bible is teaching, then that's something that we are to reject. But all of God's work, all of His words are the weights of truth. Okay? So we weigh everything against His word. Everything. 
I weigh something I hear, I weigh a government, I weigh an individual, I weigh it against his word. Now he begins to give us pictures of things that are weighed, or things that are weighed here. Verse 12, it is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. So look what it says, it's an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. In other words, good ruling kings find great displeasure in acts of wickedness. But it also should be an abomination to a ruler or a king to be guilty of committing wickedness themselves. In other words, they should be alarmed at their own evil devices. And people that see those evil devices ought to be displeased with those as well. Now, even in Bible days, we'll refer to it that way, when there was something being done wrongly or sinfully by a seated king or a ruler, the people would show their rejection of that by removing themselves from the presence of that individual or by punishing that ruler. In other words, they would seek to have that ruler removed. Now what this is not, is that is not a call to violently overthrow that particular ruler. However, it is a call for restoration to order and restoration to justice. Honestly, rulers and authorities are given that authority by God. They have been placed there for the benefit of mankind. We don't have rulers just so people can have power. We have rulers for the benefit of society. Now, Christ governs all things. That means government's God's idea. God is giving that as a benefit to society. So the emphasis is what? It ought to be done correctly. Proper weights, proper balances. It ought to be done without wickedness. The emphasis is on being good governments. Okay, good governments. Governments that are not based upon corruption or based upon sin. Not something that's just lip service. Someone says, I'm going to do, but they don't do it. They actually are. God's government is intended to be a real benefit to society. In other words, it really should benefit all. Now you think, well, this, this, how does this all apply to today? Well, look at it. It says it's an abomination to kings to commit wickedness for the throne, that's the seat of government, is established by righteousness. We know righteousness is established by he who is righteous, and that's God. Every throne was established by righteousness, but what man does with that position is where the error and the sin and the wickedness comes in. Now we read through the Old Testament and we have pictures of this. You read through the judges, you read through the kings, and you find out that most of them failed miserably. There are very few kings like David was. Uh, David's son, Solomon, who is the primary author of the Proverbs, was not a perfect king. However, we have to keep in mind that most leaders, most rulers, most kings do not know God. They don't know God spiritually. They don't know Him by experience. They've never been illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God. They do not even possess the knowledge of the Scriptures. 
So what does that person do in response? That individual acts based upon who and what they are. So I'm not surprised if a person who doesn't know God acts that way, even in governing. Now I'm more shocked if a person claims righteousness, claims to be of God, and then acts contrary to the Scriptures. But I'm not going to be alarmed by someone who doesn't know God acting the way that they do. Yet, they're not getting away with that. Because God is still holding that person responsible for using that office of governance properly. Now, we do know that Christ's throne, Christ's rule is perfect. He loves righteousness. He hates iniquity. Christ rules with a perfect government. There is no worry of whether or not he's going to govern wrongly. Is is he going to bring benefit to society? Of course he's going to bring benefit to society. He is perfection. In Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist uh, makes this statement about the throne of God. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The throne of God is a righteous throne. Why is that important? Because, folks, the very support, the very strength, the very foundation, and the very security of every single nation depends upon the righteous establishment that's given by God. The the throne of God is where safety is. The throne of God is where security is. The throne of God is where perfect righteousness and perfect judgment and law has been given. Literally, justice, perfect justice and perfect judgment are the inhabitants of the throne of God. In other words, when we see God's throne, you're seeing a picture of perfect governance. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter number 9, when he was announcing the coming of Jesus as Messiah. This is really remarkable now, when you look at this and you consider uh, what we know now, uh, when you go back and you read these passages. Isaiah 9 is one of those I hate to say this, but it's one of those Christmas passages. We read it at Christmas time and we think about it and it's because it's one that's recognized. But the prophet Isaiah was uh, in chapter 9 was talking about people walking in darkness in verse number 2. Let's look at it. Isaiah 9. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shine. Isaiah paints this picture of people walking around in darkness. People that are walking around in the darkness of, of, their, uh, of, their, of their sin. Verse 3 says, Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. The joy before thee, according to the joy in the harvest, and men rejoice when they divide the spoil. It, it's, it's, a, it's a bad situation. He said, the light has shined. And he announces the birth of the Prince of Peace in verse number 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now watch this. And the government 
shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Of course, we know that Isaiah, the child Isaiah was talking about was Jesus Christ when he would come and in the incarnation, take on that robe of human flesh. He was truly born. He was certainly a child. He lived as any other human being ever lived. But Jesus Christ was God's son. Christ is the same substance with the father, even in government. God is to be received as the perfect truth. Not just for salvation, but even for the very things. The government, the ruling of nations. His throne is a righteous throne. Earthly rulers, no matter who they are, are appointed by God, placed by God, ordained by God to rule according to truth, equity, and justice. Every ruler is held accountable to that. So we see that's the explanation of the government of God. Secondly, we see more clearly the equality of the work of the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. The equality. In other words, the work that they're doing back in Proverbs 16 is it is an equal work. Verse 13, righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him that speaketh right. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death, but a wise man will pacify it. In the light of the king's countenance is life, and his favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. So not only does Christ and the Father govern all things, but the work of Christ establishes all things as well as the work of the Father. In other words, what the Father does, Christ the Son does. They, do, they never act contrary to one another. And he says, righteous lips are the delight of kings. What, is, what are righteous lips? Righteous lips are people who speak the truth. They're people who speak truth. They speak righteousness. They advise people on how to administer fairness, how to administer justice, how to have sound judgment, and do what is best for the people's good. Now, kings ought to honor people like that. In other words, let's say a ruler has a person who speaks righteously, gives good counsel, gives good advice, speaks truth, encourages that leader, that ruler, to rule with the benefit of the people in mind. That would be a perfect environment, would it not? The truth of the matter is, is most government that we see is contrary to that. Most times it is not righteous lips that are speaking, but it is wicked lips that are speaking to accomplish or to gain something for themselves, not for the benefit of everybody. Some leaders only listen to the counsel of people that flatter them. Some people, some leaders only listen to the people who bribe them. We talked about bribery a number of weeks ago. Some people only listen, or these leaders only listen because they love the power. But their love of power, their love of flattery, is to the harm of their own community. 
But it says righteous lips are a delight of kings. They love him that speaks right. Leaders, rulers, appreciate advice that is godly, is reasonable, is honest. Christ delights in honesty. Christ delights in that which is holy and righteous. Christ is delighted no matter who the audience is when the doctrines of the truth of the Word of God without any compromise are explained and preached and even are used to enforce a government's laws. In other words, if a government or a town or a nation or a city is being governed by godly principles from the Word of God, Christ delights in that. If a nation wants the favor of God upon it, it rules according to the doctrines of God. If our country wants the favor of God upon it, it rules according and weighs everything against the Scripture. And those things found to be contrary to it are rejected. You see, people want all the answers to, to what, what's all the unrest? Man does not want to be governed and ruled by perfect righteousness. That is the problem with society. But Christ is not the reason. Because He always governs with righteousness. His laws are never burdensome. His commands never go too far. The man who speaks and declares the whole counsel of God, even when nobody else will listen to the counsel of God, God delights in that truth being spoken. There's no doubt in my mind, even in the dark days in which we're living, there are many, many people who are speaking truth. They're speaking things that are consistent with the Bible. I'm convinced there are people in high-level leadership positions all across the world who are speaking and wanting governing to be just like Christ would have it to be. But those voices are being drowned out. There are voices that are louder. There are, there are things that are, that are elevated. A preacher recently, I heard him say that God's people are still speaking. The still small voice, they're still speaking, but right now the voice is just being drowned out by voices of wickedness that are speaking louder. But understand that the government problems, wherever it is, isn't because God's government doesn't work. It's because man refuses to submit to righteous government. Notice this gets, gets even down to the very heart of it. Verse 14, the wrath of a king is as messengers of death. To be subject to the wrath of a king is to receive a message of your own death. That's what he's saying. A king's wrath is like an angel of death. In other words, when his wrath is poured out, often it leads to destruction and sometimes even the immediate death to a person. He passes a sentence upon a person and that messenger, it comes so swiftly that even that person's life may be itself even taken. It's as if a messenger of wrath comes and takes hold or takes that person away in their wickedness. 
But we think about the wrath of a king. There is no more frightening wrath than the wrath of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard another preacher just before I came over today, very short clip of a sermon. And he said, we don't really understand the love of God until we fully comprehend the wrath of God. When we read that passage like Romans 8 that tells us about the love of God, the love of God becomes more powerful when we really truly understand what it would be to be truly subject and facing God's wrath. See, we don't have a comprehension. We can, we can make out the wrath of an earthly king. <clears throat> we can look over history. We can find, we can find people who have acted uh, in the... Uh, the if, if you wanted a definition of wickedness, we could name rulers who fit that profile and their wrath that they poured out on people. But the wrath of God and His hatred of sin, if we truly understood what that wrath entails... It would magnify the love of God that He has for us even more. You'll never truly understand the love of God and the love of Christ until you truly understand what it would be like to face the wrath of God. In Revelation 6, we get just a glimpse of this. And Revelation 6 is a frightening chapter. It's frightening because it is people who are facing or under the wrath of God. And if you look there at Rome, uh, Revelation 6, verse 15, the Bible says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And look how it ends. And who shall be able to stand? These wicked kings, this is part of the sixth seal being opened. The people that were so fearful of God's wrath were saying, they were crying out to the mountains and the rocks saying, I would much rather have that mountain fall on me and have that rock fall on us than to face the wrath of God. And folks, until we understand that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts and God's love has been demonstrated toward us and has removed us from ever facing the wrath of God. But yet God's perfect government, not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, requires that one day the God's wrath will be poured out on all unrighteousness and all wickedness. And then back in the text, Proverbs 16, the end of verse 17, but a wise man will pacify it. A wise person who recognizes an offense or recognizes a crime that's been committed will do everything they can to try to prevent the wrath of that king. In other words, they will step in as a mediator. One of the great examples in Scripture is how Jonathan, King Saul's son, stepped in as a mediator 
between Saul, his father, and David. Saul wanted to pour out his full wrath on David. And Jonathan stepped in and by soft answers, he pacified the wrath of his father. Now there's a lesson here. It's a wise person that believes in Christ. It's a wise person that pleads only his righteousness for the forgiveness of his own sin. But he also recognizes, I deserve to pay and I deserve the wrath of God. But yet Christ has stepped in between me and the Father. Right? The Father's wrath must be poured out against sin. The Father's wrath was poured out upon His Son. The entirety of His wrath, Christ absorbs the entire wrath of the Father that should have been put on us. A wise man pacifies the wrath. It's a beautiful picture. The wrath of the Father who's holy and just and perfect, who could not even look upon sin, who could not even look upon His Son, who became sin for us, who knew no sin, Jesus Christ pacified, satisfied the wrath of the Father. That wrath is now not poured out on you and I, but rather it was poured out on His Son. And this final verse we'll look at tonight, in the light of the king's countenance, his life, and in his favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. Again, a beautiful picture here. When a king or a ruler looks upon a person now with a, a pleasant or an accepting countenance, a demeanor, who was once under that person's facing that person's wrath or facing his displeasure. One commentator gave an illustration of a, a governor who grants the pardon of someone who was under the sentence of death. That person goes from being what appears to be out of the favor of the governor to now under the favor of the governor because now the governor looks upon them and says, there's been an update in your case. You are not, you've now been found not guilty of that which you've committed. This is that picture of the light of the countenance of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. How He's revealed Himself to us. How He shows us His gracious presence every day. How He allows us to be in communion with Him. How we're comforted each and every day with the Holy Spirit. What it is to have the joy of salvation. To know that we have truly been delivered from our sin. Folks, the reality is, is behind all of this, God's government cannot be ignored. Government is not just about physical government of a nation. It is the very government of God which is ruling even in the spiritual realm. How God governs. Psalm 30 verse 5 says this, David says, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. David, throughout that psalm, uses phrases like, I will extol thee, for thou hast lifted me up. Thou hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. Lord God, 
I cried unto thee and you healed me. Thou hast brought my soul up from the grave. Thou kept me alive. I didn't go down into the pit. Your anger endured for a moment, but, but weeping endured for a night, but now joy comes. Verse 7, Lord, by thy favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide my face and I was troubled. He ends the psalm by saying, To the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. What a joy it is to know and to be in Christ. To have fellowship with Him. In the light of the King's countenance is life. That is in fact where we have life is in Christ. The section ends with and His favor is as a cloud of the latter rain. God's favor, the illustration here, especially in, those, in the areas that they were, sometimes rain would become very scarce. And historical accounts, and even Scripture sometimes gives us illustrations of that when the rain would come, it would come at an unexpected time or it would come suddenly. It would come in a time just before it was needed. In other words, it would come just before the time when the seeds were being sown or just right before the harvest was going to be brought in. That's how the favor of God works. You think about how we came to Christ, how Christ came to us. One moment, it doesn't appear as if anything is happening. One moment, it appears as if there's nothing to even speak of. And suddenly, the favor of God and the salvation of God and His righteousness comes upon us. And suddenly, we are awakened to the love of God. It came on us so quickly, just at the right time. That's why Christ, when He came into this world to save sinners... Hosea 6.3 compares His coming as being like the rain. He came from heaven, left the right hand of His Father, came and gave the free gift of God to His own. Gave His love to His children. It came suddenly. It came quickly. And it was accepted and received by all of His that's how God comes upon His people in a spiritual sense. Psalm 72.6 This is illustrated that, that phrase or that thought. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In His days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. One day, God's perfect government will be fully established on this earth. Until then, we're going to have imperfect governments. We're going to have imperfect governments because we have sinners. We have people who, are, who do not know God. We have people who do not know about the things of God. Yet God says there's coming a day when my perfect government will come. Thinking back to Isaiah 9 when he said the government shall be upon his shoulders. Remember, the works of God are undivided. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, their government is all the same. Whatever the Father is doing, the Son is doing. What the Son is doing, the Holy Spirit is doing. 
The Son of God does the same work that God the Father does. In other words, when we say the where is God, we are talking about the entirety. A person can't escape, for example, the Lord Jesus Christ, but not escape God and the Holy Spirit. They're all together. David wrote in Psalm 139, Whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. That's all the work of, the, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So that first point that we talked about, Christ, the Son of God, they do govern all things as well as God the Father. And it can truly be said that God by His providence governs all and everything. Folks, listen, Christ is the pattern for all human rulers. If rulers imitated Christ as their pattern, they would properly maintain and govern according to His glory. That's what God had in mind. God had in mind a government that would be patterned after Christ Himself. The problem is not with the laws that God has given. The problem is not with the weight of God's Word. The problem is with the sin of man. That's why we're commanded, I believe, with all of my heart. That's why we're, we're commanded to pray for government leaders. Pray that they would govern according to the pattern of Christ. So when we see things on the television, on the computer that bug us and alarm us, respond by praying that Christ would be their pattern. Remember, even the least likely of people, God through His Spirit can come on them quickly, can come on them in a hurry, just like that rain, just at the right moment, and we're commanded to simply pray for those government leaders and that we might see the providence of God. Providence like a wheel, knowing that God is in control of all things. Well, let's conclude with our reading from the Valley of Vision tonight. This is on page 306, chapter number 7, simply entitled Vocation. It says, Heavenly Father, Thou hast placed me in the church which thy son purchased by his own blood. Add grace to grace that I may live worthy of my vocation. I am a voyager across life's ocean. Safe in heaven's ark may I pass through a troubled world into the harbor of eternal rest. I am a tree of the vineyard thou hast planted. Grant me not to be barren and worthless leaves and wild grapes. Prune me of useless branches. Water me with dews of blessing. I am part of the Lamb's bride, the church. Help me to be true, faithful, chaste, loving, pure, devoted. Let no strong affection wantonly dally with the world. May I live high above a love of things, temporal, sanctified, cleansed, unblemished, hallowed by grace. Thy love my fullness, thy glory my joy, thy precepts my pathway, thy cross, my resting place. 
My heart is not always a flame of adoring love, but resting in Thy Son's redemption, I look forward to the days of heaven where no languor shall oppress, no iniquities chill, no mist of unbelief dim the eye, no zeal ever tires. Father, these thoughts are the stay, prop, and comfort of my soul. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and stand and we'll be dismissed.